You're listening to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast. For more information, check out our website at www.shorelinecc.com. This is one of those very, very practical passages, and we're going to be looking at this today together because we've been learning from the Apostle Paul that we have been granted freedom in Christ. Freedom. We love when we talk about freedom. I'm not bound by anything. I am free, set free. But for what? For what? For what reason have we been set free? Galatians 5, chapter 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. In other words, God set you free. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin to set us free so that we can be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But verse 13 has a little bit of a turn. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but, but. Now, you know you love that kind of conversation with someone when somebody says, I love you, but. Okay, so... (laughs) Pretty much everything that comes after that point just totally negates everything that you've just heard before, you know? I would love to take you on a trip to Hawaii, but, you know, I really wish it was, I'd love to take you two on a trip to Hawaii, and we're going to figure out how to make that work, you know? And is such a much more friendly word, okay? But Paul, in this particular scripture, says, you were called to be free, period, but... And we're going to take a look at what that means right after that. Up until this point, Paul has been warning the Galatian church about some threats to their freedom. And it came in a group of people known as the Judaizers. And this was a group of people that said, you know what? Jesus has set you free, but you also need to do, you know, all these other things that were on their list. Circumcision was one of those big things. And so the Judaizers were saying, you know, this is great, but you also need to do this, okay? Well, most of us, I think, can say we don't have a lot of Judaizers in our life who are telling us a bunch of other rules and things that we need to do, so we probably don't feel a lot of challenge to our freedom. Jesus has set us free, but what challenges our freedom? What challenges our freedom? And it's in this passage that Paul addresses another challenger to our freedom. And he says, you know what? You know who it is? It's not a group of people. It's yourself. The challenge to your freedom is yourself. So we may not face that, but every day I have to get up and I have to look in the mirror and I still have to see myself. I'm living in this body, in this period of time, in my job, in my church, in my relationships, in my home, and I have to deal with me. I've got to deal with myself, and every day I'm challenged in that freedom. You see, living free begins when Christ, when we accept Christ and his work in our life, and we accept his leadership, his lordship, we call that, the one who has the right to say what I do and what I don't do in my life. When I come under his leadership in my life, my life begins to change. But that moment of freedom began at the time that Jesus was nailed to the cross, and he took all this, everything from way back, Adam and Eve, all the way to the end of time, and me right in the middle, somewhere, somewhere on that continuum. And he said, you know what? They're not going to be able to pay for that. I'll do it. And in that one moment, the work of freedom was done once and for all. We call that justification, that moment when we are made right with God. When I accept his lordship, he sets us free in that moment. Christ has set you free, period period. But my freedom came at a cost. 
And when I put my trust in Jesus, when I confess my sin, when I place my belief and my trust in him, and I say, I believe you're the son of God, I believe that you've paid the price for my sin, now help me to live for you. I reject my life of sin, I reject the things I was formerly doing, and I press on to know you, Jesus. In that moment, I experienced what Ephesians 2 talks about. And it's the scripture that we're very familiar with. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, that means God's work that I couldn't pay for, I've been saved by grace through the faith that I place in that finished work. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Jesus did this work for me. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not by works so that none of us could boast. I can't say I did anything. All the only work that I did in this equation up to this point is I said, yes, Jesus, I believe it's true. I believe you have something to say about my life and I accept it. And that's what Galatians 2 talks about. This is one of the scripture verses that we learned a little bit earlier. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. When Jesus was stretched out and nailed to that cross, you know who else was with him? We were. You and I were nailed to that cross too. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And now this is the part I want us to think about today as we move forward. The life I now live in this body. Because guess what? I live in this place, in this time, in my relationships, in my job, in that practical area of my life. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained by the law... Christ died for nothing. So grace is a very important concept. It's important to understand that Christ did this work for us. He breaks the chains so that we can experience freedom. Amen? Amen. But Paul warns us, we may get free from one form of bondage, only find ourselves in another. We can find ourselves in another form of bondage. So he says, you were called to be free, but, here's the rest of the verse, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You were set free, period. Now we've got some choices to make. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. You're called to be free, but... You see, there's this idea when we live under grace. Most of us have not grown up in very legalistic homes or churches. Maybe some of you have had no church background at all. Um, you know, and so maybe this concept of even having rules or somebody else speaking into your life and saying, okay, this is how you should live your life, may not be something that we readily identify with. But sometimes some of us have been living under such a grace covering, either in our homes or in our churches or in our relationships, that we forget that there is something else called lawlessness that we need to reject. Grace is a beautiful thing, and I love that. I love the fact that God has set me free. But that doesn't mean that that freedom is cheap. And it doesn't mean that I get the right because I am free, because I have liberty, that now I can move into an area called lawlessness. I'm still under a law, but whose law? 
We're under the, law, under the law of Christ. And so Paul says, you have been freed from sin. Verse 16 through 18, let's take a look at this. It says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. And so Paul says there are two things that are at war here. And he said the first one, this is a total side note, but I love that the Sharpie says magnum on it. It's like like the Sharpie of all Sharpies. Um, So this one, and it's going to be good because this is representing my, come on, magnum, you're supposed to work better than this, Okay. So this is my sinful nature. I'm trying to write big enough that we can see this. Okay? So Paul says, there is one nature at work in me. This is my sinful nature, my flesh. And he says, there's another thing that's at work in me, too, when I accept the work of Jesus, and that is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into my life the moment that I receive Christ, And he begins the work of changing me, cleaning me up, making me something that I could not be in and of myself because this is a spiritual work, not an earthly work, okay? And he says, when we walk by the Spirit, we're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. I don't even want to see what's behind me. Okay, And the Spirit desires things that are contrary to the flesh. I've got my eyes set on Jesus. I don't want to be distracted. Okay, But he says that these two sides of us are in conflict with each other. And we are controlled by the Spirit. We're going to be free from our flesh, our sinful nature. Now, flesh is is defined as that earthly nature of man, apart from divine influence, and therefore prone to sin and opposed to God. So this is just the very uh, real parts of ourselves that are set up in opposition to the work of God in our lives. It's the earthly part of me that's not under the control of God. It's not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this part of me is working in opposition to God. This is my desires, my emotions, my sense, my reason, attitudes, actions, all of that that takes place outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. So I'm way outside the safe zone when I'm living in the flesh, okay? So we have our sinful nature or the flesh, and we have the Spirit. Now, if I'm in control and I'm leading my life, I get to define and get to decide what I do, right? If this part of me is governing me, if my flesh is telling my mind my emotions, my actions, if it's informing every part of my life, then guess who gets to run the show? This side of me, my earthly nature, or my flesh. And guess who's defining what the terms of that agreement is? What the terms are? My sin nature. Because it's in opposition to the Spirit of God. But when I begin to live for the Spirit, when I begin to live a life in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, a life that is fully permeated by the presence of God, who gets to define my life? Do I get to choose? No. The Spirit of God is going to begin to inform me. And how do I know? How do I know that I'm living a life in the Spirit? 
because I'm going to find his voice in his word. And this book is going to define the terms of my relationship with God because I'm not living an earthly life anymore. I believe that my soul and my spirit are going to live forever with God, that what I'm living right now is just a a temporal uh, little momentary part of who I really am. But the real Stephanie, the real soul part of me is going to live forever with God. So you know what? What he has to say about how I live my life is really important. It's really important. And so that's why this verse in the New Living Translation, let me read it to you in this version. It says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves because the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other. Do you ever feel that? Oh, these two sides of me are constantly fighting each other so that, notice this, you are not free to carry out your good intentions. I want to do the right thing, but I'm at war. I'm at war, and we're always that way. And, and Paul continues in this passage to say, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. And here are the things that he lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. He said, you're going to know when you're following your sinful nature, because guess what? This kind of fruit is going to start showing up in your life. These are the areas where you're going to be tempted. This, is, this would be the areas where you might want to compromise. Now, if God has the right to speak into my life, and I believe that God speaks through his word, then I want to know what these terms mean, okay? I want to know what he's talking about here. I don't want to just read this as one little lump sum and get onto the fruit of the spirit, because that's the good stuff, right? That's where I want to live, right? Okay, but I want to know what's he talking about? Paul was writing in a first century context. The words he used meant something to the readers, And so if that's what he's talking about, I want to know what he's talking about. So here we go. Sexual immorality. The word comes from a word, pornea. Pornea. Okay, does that sound familiar? It's a word we get pornography from. Sexual immorality is defined as a sexual relationship outside of marriage, either before marriage, premarital, or extramarital, an adulterous relationship, an open relationship, an area where there's room in that relationship for more than just me and my husband in the purest sense of what that sexual relationship is. That's sexual immorality. Any area that I open up my life for that becomes an area, a playground for my sin nature to take over. And he says, watch out. Impurity, being morally unclean or lustful. Jesus said, you know what? You're talking about adultery, and that's one thing that you, need to, that you need to deal with. But he also said, any area of lust, if you even look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And according to him, he treats it the same way. That's an area where your sinful nature, where the fleshly part of us is taking over. Lustful pleasures. It's defined as debauchery, crude or offensive sensuality, lewd promiscuous. This is not a pure marital relationship. 
This is something that's ugly, that's detestable. Idolatry. So when we have other gods before God, all of us are prone to idolatry. I'm prone to idolatry. When we put other things in place of God, who's the only one worthy of our worship, when I look at God and I say, you know what, I know that these are the laws, I know this is the way you want me to live, but my nature's at war with me, and so I'd rather live this way. And I'd rather give in here. And I would rather spend my time doing this. Even in stuff that's good, I can let a lot of things distract me and get the best parts of my attention, my energy, my focus, my resources. Any place that sets itself up and says, in a place that is higher than God, is idolatry. Sorcery, which is witchcraft. And in the Bible, especially in these days, it was often connected with idolatry. Idolatry and witchcraft also often went hand in hand. There was a seductiveness that went with it with temple prostitutes. And so those things were very intertwined. So witchcraft and sorcery, if you're involved in any of those areas, watch out. Quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger. This is when we begin to express hatred. We're making enemies more than friends. We're feuding. We have strife. There's contention. We're engaged in endless debates about stuff that really doesn't matter. Just debate, pick a side, debate a side. Don't even care if you believe in the side. Just debate something. Causes quarreling. Jealousy is that envy, that rivalry, that sense of, you know what, I'm going to be better than. If that person does that much better, well, then I'm going to do this much better. Guess what? We're not living according to the kingdom. We're living according to the flesh. Outburst of anger. It's that fierce wrath, wrath, that boiling anger that just bursts up suddenly. And everybody's like, ah. Anger is that same kind of hatred. Jealousy. Outburst of anger. The selfish ambition. Again, just creates strife and contention. Partisanship. Dissension and division are very similar, but have a little bit of a nuance. Dissension is about disagreements or just antagonistic. You know those people that walk into the room, and you know, okay, get ready, just put up your armor because there's going to be a battle. You're just ready and waiting for it. The antagonists, they're always looking for something to pick at, okay? That's what dissension is, but division has to do with differences of opinion, and here, specifically about heresy, about, about dividing a group of people that are unified in faith over other ideas about doctrine that are not pure, other ideas that would lead us down a path that would lead us toward a sinful nature. And we have to watch out for that. Envy is greed, drunkenness, intoxication, the wild parties. And these were usually describing feasts or drinking parties that were protracted late at night and indulging in revelry. Think of frat party, you know, all of those, those things. It's the things where you're, you're involved in something that where your senses are dulled and you're making terrible decisions and you're just living for whatever feels good in that moment. Does God get to define the terms of my relationship with him? Does God get to speak into my sexuality? Does God get to say something about the choices I make? If I believe that is true, then I need to take a good hard look at that list. Because the next part of that verse is very troubling. And it says that those who indulge in those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, that hurts. But lest we feel like burdened by this in a way, we also need to recognize that every single one of us in this room are prone to that list. We don't get a pass. We are all tempted in these ways. Even the Apostle Paul, listen to this in Romans chapter 7. 
This is the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote most of the New Testament. Okay, tell me this is not at war. He says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble's with me, because I'm all too human, a slave to sin. Verse 15, I don't really understand myself. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. And instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is good, that shows that I agree the law is good. In other words, I need some boundaries. I need something in my life that is informing my decisions to give me some boundaries to work within. So I'm not the one that's doing wrong. It's sin that's living in me. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really one that's doing it, but it's sin that lives in me. So I've discovered this principle of life that when I do what is right, when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. It's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person that I am. Paul? Yes, Paul. And Stephanie. And Dwayne. And Michael. And Susan. And Marianne. Sarah. All of us. What a miserable person that I am without the work of Jesus in me. So who's going to free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Thank God. Thank God, he says. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sin nature, I'm a slave to sin. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. James chapter 1 explains the sin cycle. And he says in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But notice this, verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. God's not tempting me. This is me. This is all me. It's my own evil desire that pulls me away. And, is, and then I'm enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see the cycle that's going on here? Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and they're enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, guess what? It doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to death. And that's the biggest lie that you and I face. Because we, see, we tend to believe that if we just give into just a little bit of something, that it'll be enough to satisfy that desire, and then it'll just go away quietly, right? So we want to do that, but here's what happens. Instead of me being released from this, I end up in a feed-me-or-fight-me cycle, okay? I end up in this awful cycle where I'm enticed, I'm desire, and I get into this pattern of chronic sin, a place that is just trapped. I'm, I'm trapped, I'm trapped in my addictions, I'm trapped by my sin, and I keep finding my way back into it because it only leads to feeling more and more guilty, and instead of finding freedom and finding the way out of that cycle, I end up right back in that same cycle. And so what happens is that my flesh will keep desiring more and more and more. And guess what? 
Whatever, whatever nature I feed will grow. Whichever one that I feed will grow. And feeding those desires will lead to stronger desires, not satisfaction. So it kind of looks like this. So it looks like this. In this feed me or fight me kind of cycle, it looks like, hey, you know what? You were feeling a little lonely today. You know, there's something that's available on your phone and nobody would even notice. Why don't you just take out your phone, satisfy that little desire, you'll feel a little bit better, and then nobody will have to know. I'm enticed, dragged away by my own desires, and I, and I have a choice at that point. I either reject it and say, no, I'm not going to feed that desire. Instead, I'm going to turn to the face of God that says, the pure in heart will see God. And I have a choice to walk away. But if I give in to that temptation, I look at it, I put away, nobody knows except me and Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God who lives in me, who sees all and who knows all. And then I have another little one, because guess what? I have fed that nature. So that nature that before was like, feed me, feed me, is now saying, feed me. And that desire is going to be showing back up because a little bit of satisfaction doesn't solve it. It just feeds it. It makes it stronger. And so the next time when I'm tempted, I give in, hey, you know what? Your spouse is not home. Why don't you just watch 51 Nuances of Black, you know? <laughs> or whatever you want to do. <laughs> okay? <laughs> All right, you all know where I'm going. All right, just watch this thing. You know what? You're going to feel a lot better. It's just pure escapism. Who cares? You know, I mean, who's really noticing that? It's not really affecting. You're still, you're still totally devoted to your husband. So does it really matter? Okay, so I watch it. Feel a little bit bad inside, but I'm like, you know what? Okay, God, please forgive me. All right, I'm done. But guess what? I've just fed that desire again. And this time, it's not just saying, feed me. It's saying, feed me. And the next time, I'm on a business trip. I'm away I'm with my colleague, we're having a great night, maybe we're getting a little loose one night, we're sitting at a bar or whatever, and it's like, you know what, nobody's going to know, I'm in a totally different town. Who's going to know what's going on? Only Jesus. And I give in to that temptation. And whatever that path is, that's just one area, okay? I could pick any area, any area of sin. But that's just one illustration. Every time I give in to that, there's something inside me that says, feed me feed me, feed me. And it becomes stronger and more and more insistent. But what happens when I say no? No, no, no. I'm going to walk by the Spirit of God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that voice may be, may be really, really weak in the beginning. Because guess what? If I've been feeding this for a while, it's feed me or fight me. These are in opposition to each other, but every time I give into the Spirit of God and I plant His Word in my heart, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then the next time I face that temptation, I said, No, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. But I'm tempted, I'm enticed, I'm dragged away. No, I have been crucified with Christ. 
it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And now this life I live in my body. I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. So no, I will not give into that temptation. And I keep feeding that. Whatever that scripture is that speaks to that area of sin or that area where I'm dragged away, every time I reject that, my spirit strengthens. And I am not going to be dragged away easily and enticed by that thing to the point where I can say no. And the spirit of God says, feed me, feed me, feed me. And every time I do, I'm able to reject that sin and be able to move forward. Are there things that have hooks in us that are deep? Yes. I am not given a, a little pat answer for something that have been lifelong or, or decades-long habits. There are things that we need to do and steps that we have to take practically to make sure that what we are feeding into our minds and our spirits lines up with the Word of God because our choices will lead to consequences. And the Apostle Paul says, when you feed those other desires of your sinful nature, the consequences are death. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. We talked about it last week. A little bit of change, a little bit of compromise, a little bit of tolerance in one area of a life changes the whole thing. Changes the whole thing. Becomes unrecognizable. So we've got to be really careful about that. We've got to take a long, hard look in the mirror of God's word. God's word, the Bible. And say, God, what do you have to say? How does my life, you get to define the terms of my relationship. You get to speak into my sexuality. You get to speak into my choices. You get to speak into my spirit. What do you have to say about my life right now and where do I need to change? I've got lots of areas. Lots of areas. We all do. So this is not something to pull you down. This is something to say, let's be encouraged in the scripture of God. Because the Bible says this in James chapter 1, verse 19. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. He's not denying that we have these temptations, but he said, get rid of it. It's so prevalent. And humbly accept the word of God that is planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept the word of God that can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever, notice this. Oh, this is a beautiful verse. This is a verse of freedom. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives what? Freedom. Whoever looks into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Let's feed the Spirit. Let's feed the Spirit. We've been freed from sin so that we, can, we are free to live by the Spirit. This is our last point today. Because when we walk by and are led by the Spirit, we live by the Spirit of God. And so what happens in our life when we reject these areas of sin or compromise or temptation, and we begin to feed into the Spirit of God in our life, and we begin to pour into, guess what? Everything that God is begins to show up in my life. You know what the fruit of the Spirit is? He defines it here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which one do you need to grow in? I need like, yeah, like (laughs) a bunch of them. (laughs) What do you need to grow in? 
Because guess what? When you feed the Spirit, when you feed your Spirit, the Word of God, when you feed your Spirit, His fruit, His character will start showing up in your life. And that's what it looks like. This is true freedom. This is true freedom. This is freedom in the midst of our life circumstances. This is freedom in the midst of my everyday failures that I feel so disappointed at. Like, God, why did I fail in that area again? He's like, no, 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 no. We're moving this direction. We're going to pick up and we're going to keep going because his life in me begins to produce fruit. And this is what it looks like. It looks like love. Love that seeks the highest good, not of myself, but of others. It's not based on my emotions. It's not based on my feelings. It's not selfish. It's not disengaged. But true love is 100% committed to the well-being of another person. Not just in marriage, but wherever I find myself. True love expressed is going to be sacrificial just as Jesus' love was sacrificial for us. And it will begin to change me so that I look with others, not for what I can get out of a relationship but because of that. That's why it's going to say no to things that are outside of my marriage relationship. It's why it's going to say no. I'm not going to do something that's going to pollute my spirit because my love for God and my love for others is going to begin to show up. It looks like joy. Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is here today, gone tomorrow. It's very much dependent on circumstances. Joy, what the Bible defines as joy, is a deep, abiding sense of well-being. It's not dependent on my circumstances. It's not dependent on how much money I have. It's not dependent upon the level of health I may have or not have. It's not dependent on my popularity. It doesn't matter about my status in life, whether I get a promotion, whether I don't get a promotion, whether my streak continues, or whether I get so many likes. Who cares? My joy is not going to be dependent on anything else outside that can change. Circumstances change, but my joy is rock solid. God is giving us fruit that will plant us rock bottom in a deep foundation. Peace. This is unity. I'm not going to be prone to quarreling and dissensions and division. I'm going to be looking at peace, unity, contentment, assurance, Freedom from fear, freedom from worry. That is what the peace of God looks like. Patience. Patience. Now here it's not just, I need more patience so I'll be more, uh, I'll, I'll have a little bit more patience as I think about it. I don't need this fruit just so I can make it as I'm driving down I-5, okay? Yes, you need patience in that way. But Paul is specifically talking about patience and relationships. In other words, I'm bearing with another person. That person is taking me to the first mile, the second mile, the ninth mile, the eleventh mile, and I have to bear with someone. That's the patience that he's talking about. That's far more than this person is taking too long at the stoplight. Please go, will you already, all right? This is slow to, slow to anger, slow to speak. You're bearing with. You're not easily provoked or irritated. You're just going to let it roll because I'm living by the Spirit. And so because I live by the Spirit, I can be patient with other people in Christ because God has been so patient with me, right? God has been patient with me so I can bear with other people. Kindness, mercy. This is the merciful nature in us that puts others at ease, that regards others, that's friendly, that, that is courteous toward others, that exemplifies that life of kindness, did you know that the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Because God has been so kind to us. I am led to want to be kind to others because God has forgiven me of so much. Goodness. 
open-hearted, selfless, generous. My life overflows with goodness because God is good. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me, it will pursue me every day of my life because God is good, therefore that fruit can grow in my life. Faithfulness, when I'm loyal, I'm devoted to God, I'm devoted to others, I'm dependable. Faith, that is that, that swell of belief that God is working in my circumstances regardless of what I can see. Faithfulness, that keeps me true to my vow when I want to be tempted. Faithfulness, that keeps me showing up to work in a job that I hate. Faithfulness, God's fruit in me is faithfulness. Gentleness, that non-threatening demeanor. They're gentle. Now make no mistake, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. Strength under control. It's a will to act when I need to act or to restrain when I need to restrain. God has dealt more in my life with no's than in yeses. <laughs> Anybody else? Some people, it seems like they're just like, yes, 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 go, 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 go. The pattern in my life, because I need restraint, is for God to say, you want that? No. Mm-mm. You think you need that? No, you don't. And you learn the discipline of restraint. When you're in that situation, it's, it's growing a beautiful fruit of gentleness. It's tempering your life so that you can keep in step with the Spirit. Self-control. This is when you're behaving well. <laughs> it's the ability to restrain your actions, your desires, your emotions, to seek God's desires over your personal desires. It's when you're under control, under control. The fruit of the Spirit is all of these things. And verse 23 says, against these things, there is no law. How could there be a law against someone who is living this kind of life, who's led by, controlled by, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Your life is going to be fragrant and beautiful and good. And against that, you know what? You're going to find true freedom. There is no law that anybody can bring against you. Jesus was, was trapped in that when the Pharisees came to him and said, out of all these laws... Which is the greatest? And we talk about this a lot. He said, the greatest commandment is to love God and love other people. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart, with your emotions, with all your mind, with all your soul. Everything that encompasses making up who you are. Love God with all of that. That's going to take me a lifetime. Anybody else? Okay, I, I will be working on that until I am... 111, all right? I'm going to be working on that for a long time. That's enough to keep me busy for the rest of my life, all right? But the second one is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what? All of those fruit of the Spirit are tested in real time in our relationships. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That all gets worked out in the everyday circumstances of our relationships in our life. But if we are living that way, it's not going to be hard to serve one another humbly in love, like it says in verse 13. It's not going to be hard for us to love our neighbor as ourselves because I am controlled by the Spirit of God. I am not living according to my flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is made possible through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is the little equation that we've talked about. Believe plus receive equals become. And I would like to add that word belong. We belong 
to Jesus, when we give him that kind of leadership in our life, we belong to him. And God never asks us to do something or to be something or to try something that he has not first provided for. He's given us his son, Jesus Christ. He's given us him. And so Romans 8, chapter 1 says, So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Did you hear that? There is therefore now no condemnation. You know what? You gave into that sin. You know what? I did. Jesus, please forgive me. Help me to live by your spirit. And now there is no condemnation for those who belong in Christ Jesus. Because I belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed me from the law, that, that power of sin that's going to lead me to death. I'm set free every time I choose him and every time I walk in the freedom that comes from living a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is also accomplished by the Holy Spirit's work in our life. You notice it didn't say the fruit of Stephanie or the fruit of Bob or the fruit of Harry or the fruit of Jane. It's like the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit's work in my life. This is only possible when the Holy Spirit works this out in our life. In Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, says this, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of envy and evil, and we hated each other. But, there's a good but, right? (laughs) This is what you were, period. But, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through who? The Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. Okay? And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit live? He lives in you. He lives in me. It was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me, in the life I now live in this body that belongs to my God. I live by faith. I live by faith. Now, fruit is also the evidence of transformation. Fruit grows over time. And it looks like, you know, we have a lot of apple trees in this part of our country. It looks like buds in spring. It looks like blossoms. It looks like a little nugget of something that might be a fruit growing on a tree. And then it grows and it expands and expands and it ripens and it turns whatever color it's going to, going to be. Okay? That's what fruit looks like. Does the fruit of the Spirit grow in my life overnight? No, not a chance. Okay, this is a lifetime of work where it's constantly working that. But guess what? The Holy Spirit is patient with me. 
And so the fruit of the Spirit is going to grow in my life. It will grow as the Spirit takes up residence, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time, and that's okay. And so some of us, I know for a long time, I had this picture of my life as my spiritual life is, you know what, I knelt at an altar, I asked Jesus to forgive me my sins, and I start walking, oops, I messed up, start all over, (laughs) right back to the beginning, all right? And if you view your life in that way, your spiritual life, it's very linear, okay? This is the point of my decision to live for Christ, that's the point when I meet Jesus, And if I have this view of my life, and I'm walking along, and oops, I hit a speed bump. I made a mistake. And if my life constantly looks like i got to go back to the beginning and start again, and I travel along, oops, I hit the speed bump. i got to go back to the beginning and try again. How discouraging is that? God, I'm never going to get there. How can I get to that speed bump, let alone that one, and that one, and that one, and all the other things that come along? If I view my line, my spiritual life as a straight line path, this linear process, I'm going to become very discouraged in my spiritual growth. Very discouraged. But my, one of my mentors and friends, Dr. Scholey, you know, helped me understand this at a point when I just kept saying, God, why do I keep going back to this area of sin? Why do I keep going back to this thought pattern in my mind? And she said, Stephanie, until you start viewing your life, your spiritual life, less like a line and more like this. Okay? Where at that point, I accept Christ and I'm being changed from glory to glory to glory to glory until I reach heaven. This perfecting work of God in my life will not finish until that point. Then guess what? When I travel along and boom, I hit that speed bump. I take it to Jesus and I get back up and I keep going. And you know what? Because God is still working in me and he's not going to finish until that work is perfect, I may hit a speed bump there again. Take it to Jesus. God, please forgive me. Help me to live for you. Help me to live by the Spirit. And you know what? I get up and I keep walking. This is what the life of faith looks like. It doesn't matter how many times you hit that. Each time, God's going to deal with it at a certain level. But he is never going to stop. He's never going to give up on you. He's not going to do it. So don't you give up on yourself. Don't keep going back to the beginning and getting all down. God, why? Why? Get up, take it to Jesus, and keep going. Keep going. That is the life of faith that we have. So let's look at our spiritual lives in this way. Let's cooperate with the Spirit of God in our life. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. We're not stopping and going back to the beginning again. We're getting up and we're going to keep walking in the spirit. Those who walk by the spirit keep in step with the spirit. I'm not getting ahead of him. I'm not getting behind him. I'm staying right in step with him. Verse 25 in the message says it this way. Since this is the kind of life that we have chosen, you have a choice in this. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen, the life of the spirit, let us make sure that we do not hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work it out. Work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That is the life of the Spirit. I'm going to continually work and work 
and work and just keep going and keep going and keep going because this is the life of faith and the life of the Spirit. So as we close today, I just wanted to read a, a short little passage from Luke chapter 18. As I was thinking about this, this passage of Scripture, I woke up during the night this week and I was praying about a couple of things and the Lord brought this, this Scripture to my mind that I hadn't thought about for a long time. And it's the passage, uh, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in light of what we've talked about today, listen to this. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisees were the religious leaders who thought they had it all together. They felt really good because they were great rule followers. But stuff was going on in the heart. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So, God, I thank you that I am not like that loser over there. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. And he said, oh, God, be merciful to me, because I'm a sinner. Oh, God. Be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. Who is made right before God? Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified with God. That moment, God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. That man gets to go home justified before God. In that moment, not later, because he said those who exalt themselves are going to be humbled, but those who humble themselves, those who humble themselves will be exalted, will be exalted. There's a temptation for all of us to say, God, I, I think I've got my life together. I don't think there's anything that, that I need from you. I think I'm, I'm okay because I do all of these great things. But all of us have this temptation to see ourselves better than we are, <laughs> as more right than we are, and to think that we're okay. But the moment that our lives begin to change is the moment when we say, you know what, I really am more like that text collector, and I really want to live life by the Spirit. I really want to do what's right. So I humbled myself, and I said, oh God, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, God. I'm a sinner. That's when the fruit of the Spirit has a chance to grow in each of us. When we recognize where we really are, how far short we are. We say, God, I don't have anything to offer except myself and a sincere confession. Have mercy on me. Have mercy. Let's stand together. Mm -hmm. As we think about these questions um, that are in your listening guide, they're also on the screen. And these are the things I want us to think about as we leave this place.
maybe as you take a few minutes to respond, to kneel, to pray, to ask God, God, where do I measure up? Where am I, where am I lacking? What needs to change in my life? Let's take an honest look. What fruit is showing up in my life? Does it look like that, that first list we look at, the deeds of the flesh, the sinful nature? Is more of that showing up in my life? Is there one of those areas that's showing up in my life? Be honest. Is it evidence of my sin? Or am I seeing evidence of God's Spirit working in my life? Am I becoming increasingly more filled with faithfulness and joy and love and peace? What truth is the Holy Spirit showing me today about myself? Not about your neighbor, about yourself. God, what are you showing me about me? What do I need to see? What truth do I need to accept? The third one is simply, how am I cooperating with the Spirit's work in my life? Because we do have a choice. Are we cooperating or are we resisting? Because these two natures, they're at war. We already know that. But am I cooperating with the Spirit's work in my life? Or am I resisting him, thinking, you know what? A little bit of compromise is not going to hurt. Where am I cooperating? Where am I resisting? And the final thing, living free begins with confession. God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And ask him, honestly, God, what needs to change in my life? I want your fruit to grow in my life, so help me to see the things that maybe you see, maybe others see in my life, but maybe I'm blind to. Help me to see what is really going on in my life because I want to live a life of faith. I want to grow. I want to change. And let's bring it to Jesus, okay? Father, we thank you so much for the truth that we find in your word. Sometimes it's a hard thing that we need to hear. And sometimes it's a joyful thing that we need to hear. But God, whatever it is that you're pointing out in us, Lord, see if there is anything in us that offends you. And lead us in an everlasting way. Lord, reveal to us our unknown sin. Lord, look over our lives, examine them, see if there's anything in us that you would want to put your finger on today. And Lord, help us to be willing to see the truth of it, to look in that mirror, not look away and forget what we've seen. But Lord, willing to take the steps that are necessary for us to experience true freedom in Christ the freedom that is already made possible through the death and burial and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Help us today. Let's take a couple of minutes to respond in whatever way you feel appropriate. There are prayer walls. You can go and, and write a prayer. You're not self-identifying any, any one sin or another. <laughs> You're saying, God, I need you. All of us need him. There are people in the balcony and over on the sides that are willing to pray with you. You can come and you can sit here at this altar. You can sit here on these steps and, and turn it and you just kneel and say, God, I have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Whatever you, however you need to respond, let's take a couple of minutes. There's communion all around the balcony and here on the floor if you want to come and just be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for you, for you, for me, for us. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ in us. Let's respond to him.